guys, the honorable, the Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we appreciate y'all being here. Uh, such a historical uh, location for us to be holding court. Uh, actually, the Supreme Court uh, would meet here from the late 1830s to the early 1860s to uh, get away from the heat of Raleigh, to come up to a more pleasant venue. Uh, we are grateful that the General Assembly uh, allows us to hold court here. Our Constitution says we can hold court in Raleigh or such other place as the General Assembly may designate. And uh, they designated Edenton in the east, and uh, Justice Irvin and I were able to convince them that they needed to designate Morganton for the west, and they've done that. <coughs> so uh, this is one of our permanent homes away from home, and it's always great to be here. Folks are so gracious. I know they uh, work so hard to uh, make this a memorable occasion for everybody. Um, you notice that there are only six of us up here. Uh, Justice Hudson is participating, uh, but she's having to go through the protocol. And when I use the phrase, the protocol, three years ago, nobody would have known what that meant, but we all know what it means today, sadly. Um, so uh, from time to time, she will uh, text a question and or a comment uh, to Justice Irvin. Uh, so he is not uh, posting anything on Facebook. He's simply uh, trying to see what Justice Hudson might be uh, seeking for him to ask. Um, and also, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, no one will appear for our last case of today uh, after this case, because this is our last case for today. Uh, our case uh, three uh, today had to be uh, canceled because one of the attorneys uh, developed COVID. Um, so uh, our uh, next case and our last case for today is State versus uh, Jeter, uh, maybe Jeter, uh, and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court, my name is Jason Yoder. I'd like to reserve five minutes um, for rebuttal. I'm here today um, representing Mr. Getter in this probation revocation appeal. 399 days passed between the expiration of probation in Mr. Getter's case and the revocation hearing that occurred in this case. The Court of Appeals below found that delay to be significant and unadvisable in the administration of justice, but nonetheless upheld the good cause finding below because it concluded that no single set of factors applied. The Court of Appeals should be reversed. A few years ago in State versus Morgan, this court was asked to interpret a General Statute 15A 1344F, the statute that gives a trial court the power to hold a revocation hearing 
after the expiration of a defendant's uh, probation. That statute has three prongs. Um, first, the violation report must be filed prior to the expiration of the defendant's probation. Second, the court must make a finding at the hearing that the defendant in fact violated probation prior to the expiration of the probationary period. And the third prong, which is at issue in this case, is that the trial court must find for good cause shown and stated why probation should be extended, modified, or revoked. This case asks this court to constitute, uh, I'm sorry, to interpret what constitutes good cause. As the state conceded in its briefs and um, defendant has argued, the purpose of the statute is to limit the trial court's ability to revoke probation after the probationary period has expired. That's the sole purpose of this statute. And it should be interpreted in light of the General Assembly's purpose. <clears throat> the Court of Appeals below found that no set of factors apply. In so finding, they created an unconstitutional guide, which creates unfettered discretion in the trial courts throughout the state. It's not unusual for good cause to not have specific factors to need to be found to justify it. Isn't that correct? Well, um, I cited several um, good cause um, provisions in which, although the statute has no statutory uh, con uh, conditions, this court and the lower courts have found like specific conditions um, that need to be considered when making a good cause determination. Well, there can be good cause shown for different kinds of circumstances, but say, for example, uh, for a continuance uh, in the discretion of a trial court. Uh, there need not be specific factors to be found for good cause to be shown for continuance. Isn't that an example of such? Um, I don't know of any case saying that there, there are no factors that apply, um, but I do know that, that there are cases holding that, that, um, that uh, whether or not a continuance should be granted is in the discretion of the trial court. But as to whether there is a no factor at all, um, I'm not sure there's a, a, a case that holds that per se. Um, so you would tend to agree then that there are some aspects of a good cause showing that do not call for a delineation of factors to justify good cause. And your argument is that there should be such here, but that's not necessarily the case for good cause demonstrations across the board. Is that right? Well, this the official commentary to this section actually explains the purpose behind the rule. Well, let, let's, which talk, is, let's, let's talk about the official commentary a second. My understanding is that the official commentary was written by the Criminal Code Commission that's in the 1970s. That's correct. Uh, the statutes changed substantially since then, hadn't it? It has changed, but that official commentary has never been changed. And I don't think there's an indication in the legislative history that um, the purpose behind that statute has ever been significantly well, changed. The, the, sta the statute at the time that it was drafted by the Criminal Code Commission specifically requ you know, required some establishment that reasonable efforts were made to take care of the violation notice prior to the expiration of the uh, 
period of probation, I think. Is that understanding correct? That's correct. That's the previous that, version. That language of the has been taken out of the statute, right? That language was taken out of the statute. That's correct. What what effect, if any, should the removal of a specific requirement that there be a showing that reasonable effort? I don't remember what the exact language was. You can probably tell me, but the uh, that there be re a showing of reasonable efforts to get the matter heard before the expiration of the period and its, its removal and the uh, insertion of language that simply referred to good cause? Um, well, I think that if you look at the legislative uh, history of this specific provision, there's no indication that, that in rewriting this statute, they intended to give the, the prosecutor and trial courts unfettered discretion to hold these hearings no. indefinitely. The purpose of amending this statute, as I understand it, was solely based on a court of appeals opinion in State versus Reinhardt, which held that trial courts have no authority to extend or modify probation after the expiration of probation. And if you look at the legislative notes, the hearing, and um, everything else involved with the legislative history of this statute, I think the it was rewritten, and yes, that language was removed, but I don't think there was any indication in any of the legislative materials that the purpose was to give, to take away the state's responsibility to bring hearings in a timely manner. And, and Justice Hudson, I think this is an appropriate place to ask this, when Justice Hudson wanted you to uh, tell us you know, what, uh, what should guide us in determining what factors should be considered? Not what are the factors, but how should we determine what's a relevant factor, if I understand the question correctly? Well, I, I think one of the factors I identified in the briefing was the official commentary. And I understand your point that the official commentary was written and a long time ago, but it's never been changed or modified, which is an indication that none of the parties believed that any of these changes were intended to you, extend. I mean, I, mean, I apologize for interrupting you, but do you know of any instance in which a le uh, an amendment to Chapter 15A was accompanied by a legislative amendment to the commentary? Um, I don't know of that specifically. Um, I didn't look I mean, I for did, commentaries I, I, I that had been deleted. Just because I'm trying to figure out what weight to give the argument that you just made. I mean, <clears> there was a practice seems to me if there was a practice of amending the commentary at the time the statute was amended, that might be one thing. If the commentary was left undisturbed when an amendment was made, that might be something else. That's why I was, was asking the question. Um, well, I, I don't know of any case where it was deleted, but, you know, in consideration of an amendment, but of course in this case it wasn't deleted. So it remains the official commentary to govern the, the the interpretation of this particular statute. And I, and I interrupted your answer to Justice Hudson's question. I'm now correcting myself for interrupting in the question that I, the answer to a question that I asked for somebody else. So I understand what that looks like, but go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, um, the question the question that Justice Hudson said was, asked was what should we consider in identifying the factors and you named the uh, official commentary, what other not what, the, not what the factors are, but what considerations would, should we look to in identifying relevant factors? Well, I think you want to look to the purpose of the statute, um, which the intent of the statute is to limit and stop the state from being able to bring revocation hearings after the expiration of probation. That is the purpose 
of the statute. The General Assembly did not have to include this provision at all. It could have said that all you have to do is file a violation report prior to the expiration of probation, and you have unlimited power to <clears throat> hold a revocation hearing irregardless of the amount of time that lapses. They didn't do that. So the clear um, purpose of this statute is to restrict that. And in looking at what factors you need to consider, I think that is the rubric that has everything has to be looked through. Um, what is the purpose of the statute and how can we affect that statute? And how can we have consistent uh, rulings throughout the state um, in terms of what would and would not constitute good cause? Already we're seeing very wild and inconsistent good cause findings throughout the state. We're seeing judges say that the period of time doesn't matter, that the fact that you violated probation uh, at all prior to the expiration of probation is itself the good cause uh, to revoke probation. That would seem to ignore the structure of the statute, which requires both a finding that a violation happened prior to probation and a separate and completely distinct uh, reason for revoking probation after the expiration of probation. Why would it not be appropriate good cause for the underlying charged offenses that are the reason for the probation violation allegations to be resolved prior to the probation violation uh, coming to resolution? Well, um, I think one of the reasons why that would be inappropriate is because it effectively creates uh, this loophole in the statute. Uh, under the Justice Reinvestment Act, there's really only two ways a defendant can have their probation revoked these days, effectively for absconding and for committing a new criminal offense. For absconding, uh, a good cause is generally going to be found because the defendant is, himself has made you know, themselves unavailable prior to the expiration of probation in these cases. Um, so that is going to be automatic in many cases. And if you say that the state uh, should be able to resolve the underlying charges, um, then that would take away good cause for the second uh, main reason why people are revoked these days. I think in looking at the statute as a whole, um, you have to interpret it in a way that it has meaning. Um, and that has to be separate and distinct from the, um, than the, than the calendaring authority of the state, as, as you're saying. Is there actually a prospect that a probationer could benefit from having a matter to be uh, delayed or continued until after the resolution of the charged offenses that undergird the probation violation charge, as in the charged offenses that undergird the probation violation charge could for whatever reason be resolved to the benefit of the probationer such that there is nothing upon which the probation violation could stand? Well, that, and, and this is uh, an example of that sort of a fact pattern. Here, um, the state attempted to like prosecute the underlying uh, criminal charge, um, and they made the argument that this would have benefited the defendant, but, but it didn't ever benefit the defendant. The state was going to pursue this revocation irregardless of what happened to the underlying charge. I know what happened here. 
but my question was, with all due respect, is there that prospect of not knowing how the case was going to come out going into the probation violation charge? Isn't that something that could inure to the benefit of a probationer and hence be good cause shown that actually benefits the probationer? Well, the good cause has to be shown by the state, um, not something that has to be good for the defendant. So this statute puts the burden on the state and solely on the state. It's not a speedy trial statute where it has to be asserted by the defendant. It's not a right of the defendant. It's a statute that, is, that puts the burden solely on the state to show that good cause. And whether or not the defendant might benefit uh, from a delay or not um, would not necessarily go to the central question of whether the state itself has shown good cause. Well, what do you, what do you mean if you read the transcript of the hearing, the, the revocation hearing on remand, the prosecutor says several times, I didn't count the number, but things like we agreed to, con to continue the matter, it was, you know, the statements were all, at least the way I read them, most readily susceptible to an interpretation that the defendant didn't want to proceed. Uh, until the substantive charges were disposed of in some respects. The, you're trying to understand we're in the position we're usually in where you were not the, the counsel for defendant at the, uh, the, the revocation hearing and you don't know any more than we do about what happened. But assuming that I'm reading that, well, one, if I tell me if you don't think I'm reading those statements correctly, assuming that I am as a secondary matter, what weight, if any, in a good cause determination should be given to a defendant's uh, active participation, for lack of a better word, in the process that led to the delay in hearing the revocation proceeding? Uh, well, there's two things I would say about that. If the state is... Uh, happy to continue a person's probation revocation case for the length of time that is involved here. There's a serious question as to whether revocation is even appropriate, whether the person and, is actually and a danger. Say, and you would say that regardless of whether the defendant agreed with that approach uh, and encouraged it? Yes. Well, the statute doesn't, doesn't have any um, specific um, it, it puts the burden on the state to it show. Could, it, puts the, the it puts the burden on the state to show good cause, and I think what we're all trying to figure out in this case is, what does that mean? What things are relevant to a showing of good cause? And one of the things I'm trying to figure out is, sure. is a defendant's active participation, which is the way I read the transcript, does that have any, you know, should that be considered in determining whether there was good cause for not hearing the, the violation matter before the expiration of the parole period? Uh, well, I, I would say one thing about that is that there was no specific finding by the trial court as to the good cause that the defendant consented to all of the extensions or, you know, continuances in this case. But it, it, it is fair to say that, that your predecessor, trial counsel, did not dispute the accuracy of the statement made by the prosecutor at the, uh, or the statements made by the prosecutor at the revocation hearing, the remand revocation hearing. Well, well, and the second thing I was going to follow up, which ties into that, is that the prosecutor said he was unable 
to hold these hearings earlier because there were multiple trials, that they're limited by the number of criminal um, you know, hearings that they have in Buncombe County, and that he said he does this in every single case. Um, I think there's a question as to whether um, the defendant here was driving the train on delaying um, these hearings in this case, or whether the prosecutor was simply unable or unwilling to proceed and wanted to take the shortcut of you know, resolving the underlying charges irregardless of how long it took uh, before they were going to proceed in this case. And Council, isn't that a fairly typical practice throughout the state? To resolve the underlying charges prior to? Yes, sir. Um, I don't practice in the trial courts. Um, I don't know how common that is throughout the state. Um, but I think the statute here, it was designed by the General Assembly to limit that. Um, whether the practice is that or not, uh, the General Assembly has made it in its own determination that there should be limits as to how long um, a case can go before it's finally resolved. And, and sorry. Go ahead. No, and if you're successful in your argument, what are the practical implications for the court system for future hearings? Well, I think when the, this case is somewhat unique in that it involves a suppression motion that eliminated the defendant or the state's ability to prosecute in this case. And the only reason we're here today is because the prosecutor decided to use the unconstitutional and illegally seized evidence at a revocation hearing. And this court in the 1980s approved the use of that and found that it was not a problem if the government used illegal um, evidence at a revocation hearing. Under the very narrow circumstances of this case, I would say that that is not good cause. Uh, but more generally, I think that if you rule in my favor, the practice throughout the state would either be to get an explicit waiver from the defendant, like a written waiver or an express waiver on the record um, to continue a case, uh, or the state would have to prove um, the underlying criminal charge um, as soon as practical. Well, you, you would agree that the number of hearings on probation violations would increase? I think the number of hearings would be the same, but, but the nature of those hearings would change. Full-blown full hearings as opposed to admissions. That's right. But these and hearings are more limited in nature than a full-blown criminal trial. And um, perhaps even an increase in um, um, the number of cases on probation dockets as a result of, of the ruling that you're requesting. Um, I'm not sure how, how it would have that impact as the, as the number of probation cases would increase, you're saying? Well, if, so if, if you have to have a hearing as opposed to um, a, a full-blown hearing as opposed to an admission uh, based on a conviction, um, then those cases need to be on a calendar sooner. And it's less likely that you could have um, a probation violation case brought up and consolidated with a plea transcript, for, for instance. That, that's true. I, I think that that would be one possible um, outcome. 
and that would uh, lead to an increase uh, in council time preparing for those hearings. It's possible that it would increase, there's often separate counsel for the revocation hearing uh, as there would be for the underlying criminal charge, although sometimes they are the same counsel and there would be you know, efficiency in that. Well, but efficiency perhaps in one sense, but an increase in cost to the taxpayers on the other hand. There could be. And, and it, it could even lead to less certainty in when cases are revoked and when probation is revoked, given the standard that the trial court is um, permitted to operate under for probation hearings. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? I do not believe that's an accurate assessment. So we, what, what is the standard that for, for a trial court to revoke probation, what would a trial court need to find? How would least they need to be satisfied? It's a reasonable satisfaction standard in North Carolina. At least it was prior to the amendments of the, of the general statutes. So, so would a conviction more likely um, have a standard application across the board as to a reasonable satisfaction to a trial, trial judge? Well, in North Carolina, conviction is a, is a presumptively, um, is presumptive evidence, and a, a conviction itself can just be entered into the record to get a, secure a revocation. So it's, uh, they it's don't have to have an independent hearing based on that. Right, so it's less certain if it's left to the satisfaction of a trial judge. I don't know, actually, that there's any cases saying that reasonable certainty is less than beyond a reasonable doubt. The cases on reasonable certainty actually say that it's an entirely subjective standard and that the reasonable certainty of one judge could be higher or lower than the reasonable certainty of another judge. So it may be, and in fact I know it is the case, that many judges only revoke probation when they believe it's been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. That's their reasonable certainty. Um, I've seen that in transcripts and I know that's the practice in some places around the state. Um, it may be considered lower in some places, but I don't think it necessarily is at all. Do you have any more no, thank questions? You. I do have only six minutes and 45 seconds left. Um, so I would like to um, reserve um, the remainder of my time, if I could, for a rebuttal. Thank you, Councilman. We'll hear from the FLA. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Liliana Lopez, and I am with the Department of Justice, and I am here on behalf of the state. Uh, the trial court complied with all the statutory requirements, and the Court of Appeals decision comports with binding precedent and is not in conflict with any decision of this court, but most importantly, the decision of, of this court in State versus Morgan. The current version of 15A1344F allows the trial court to revoke, modify, or extend probation after a period of probation expired if three requirements are met. The first of which, before the expiration of the probation, the state filed a written violation report with the clerk indicating its intent to conduct a hearing. The second requirement being that the court finds that the probationer did violate a condition of their probation, and finally, um, number three, that the court finds for good cause shown and stated that the probation should be extended, modified, or revoked. Completely absent from this new version of the statute is language from an earlier version of the statute that says the court may revoke probation 
after the expiration of the period of probation if the court finds that the state has made reasonable effort to notify the probationer and to conduct the hearing earlier. Our lawmakers made a deliberate choice when they completely eliminated that language regarding the efforts to conduct the hearing earlier, but the defendant wants this court to read that the statute says the court may revoke probation for good cause shown and stated that it made reasonable efforts to conduct the hearing earlier. However, the had the legislator intended to um, have the statute read that way, it would have left the language in there. But instead, it completely struck through that language. Is, is, is it the state's contention that whether the violation notice was brought on for hearing within a reasonable time after the uh, end of the expiration, end of the uh, period of probation is irrelevant to a good cause analysis under the statute as it's currently written? It would be a case-by-case -case analysis. Well, I guess that means that my, my problem is at some point you've got to give some content to what good cause is. I mean, we could, I could probably come up with an absurd hypothetical that you would probably agree wouldn't just be justifiably found to be good cause. For example, I find good cause to uh, consider this now even though the period of probation is re uh, uh, expired because the sky's blue. Sure. I mean, if the judge, hopefully no judge would ever do that, but if a judge did that, would, you, would that be good cause in your view? It, it it would be, again, it, it always comes down to a case-by-case -case analysis. Good cause can encompass and can consider the reason for delay. However, good, good cause does not equal reasonable efforts to conduct the hearing I mean, are there, are there limits to what good cause could consist of in the state's view? Any at all? It would be the state's position that it would be a case-by-case -case analysis and that there would be no limits under the specific facts and circumstances of each case. Good cause um, could exist because a probationer absconded um, for, for 10 years and, and the hearing wasn't able to be heard within 10 years. Good cause um, could encompass and take into account the protection of public safety um, good cause could exist because a county doesn't have the resources to hold a criminal session of court more than three times a year. District uh, 30A, I believe it's uh, I believe it's District 30A, which encompasses five different counties, holds, uh, for example, Clay County holds three criminal sessions an entire year. Graham County, three sessions a year. That, however, would not apply would, to Mecklenburg would, 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 would those limits on the number of court sessions in Graham County have very much relevance to what was good cause in Catawba? It, it, it more likely would not. Um, Catawba. I mean, is there? I mean, Justice Hudson wanted me to ask a question similar to the one that I've just asked, which is, in the state's view, is there any limiting principle whatsoever applicable to the good cause determination? It would be the state's position that there is no single limiting um, condition. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, that what? That there's no sing single limiting condition. Um, good cause is a legal term of art and has a definition. Good cause is defined as a legally sufficient ground or reason based on all relevant circumstances and, and facts. So 
a court, uh, I, I believe, um, as Your Honor put it, couldn't find good cause because the sky is blue, as opposed to, well, today the sky isn't gray. Or today is Tuesday. What, and that what, would that wouldn't be that wouldn't be good cause. Would it? it would not. It, it would not. I don't. I don't believe um, it would be good cause in, in any um, in any jurisdiction in in this county. It, it good cause doesn't always have to come down to one single factor. And good, is this somewhat analogous, perhaps, to uh, speedy trial determinations? I don't believe so. Uh, it would be the state's position that, that it would not, um, due to the change in, in the language of the statute. Um, the language from the statute was completely struck through, um, one, that, one that stated that uh, the finding that was necessary by the court was that the state made reasonable efforts to conduct the hearing earlier, but they struck through that language and changed the language and instead substituted this good cause finding uh, for extension for revocation or for modification. It's, it's important to note that the statute changed so much um, in that it, it, the General Assembly broadened discretion, arguably, uh, because the statute used to read that you can only revoke probation under certain circumstances, but our legislator broadened the statute and not only changed it to where it can be revoked, but probation can now even be modified or extended. But of course, that's, that's not unfettered or boundless or limitless discretion. There still needs to be a finding of good cause, and that's if the first and second prong of the statute is met. Um, so there are several hoops that the state has to jump through in order for a court uh, to find that probation could be extended, modified, or, or revoked. So, so I understand your position that good cause um, is a case-by-case -case analysis, but isn't there some value to having that the standard applied equally across the state so that, so that what's good cause in one part of the state is also considered good cause in another part of the state? It, it, it would be difficult to, to set a specific set of factors uh, that would apply to each and every case, just because every case is going to be is going to be different. Not every case is going to be a, re a revocable offense. For example, you can only revoke under two certain set of circumstances. You can only revoke if one, the defendant um, commits a, a new criminal act while on probation, or two, absconds. So we may not even be looking at a revocation hearing. A court may just be considering extending or modifying. So the set of circumstances could be completely different. A court may extend probation because perhaps the defendant fell ill and um, wasn't able to hold a job and couldn't pay its supervision fees, um, couldn't attend, um, couldn't attend anger management, those things cost money. So a, def uh, a court may find um, it reasonable to extend his probation to allow a probationer to complete the terms of his, con uh, of his probation instead of revoking, going ahead and, and revoking or. Right, but in the limited circumstances where revocation is permitted under the statute and the state is seeking revocation after the term of probation has expired, if we were to look to things like the official commentary and our prior cases to, to discern some general standards that are, are applicable across different types of cases, wouldn't that 
help ensure some uniformity and ensure that defendants across the state were treated equally? Again, I, I, th I think I think would be a case by case analysis. If 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 the court were to set a firm stance, a a case cannot be heard five years after the expiration of probation, for example, that 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 would then reward a defendant for absconding probation before the expiration and then just laying low for 10 years or, or five years in a day and, and, then, and then being able to celebrate because he exceeded some kind of statute of limitations. I think it just depends on, on each and every circumstance But to be fair, is there a statute of limitations in this state on anything other than misdemeanors? There is not. There is not a statute I mean, so of limitations. For, for felonies, there's no, there's no statute, never has been. I think there may actually be some statute of limitations. Isol isolated statutory provisions then that require it? I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I said there may be some isolated statutory provisions that neither one of us are thinking of at the moment. Correct, <laughs> correct. Justice Hudson wanted me to ask if waiting for resolution of new charges constitutes good cause and the state has calendaring authority and controls the trial schedule. Uh, would that kind of holding permit the state to extend the revocation period indefinitely? And if that answer to that question is yes, is you think that's what the General Assembly had in mind when they changed the law? I don't. I, it, it would be the state's position that that's not what the General Assembly had in mind. I don't. I don't think anyone had the mind had it in mind um, to give the state unfettered calendaring authority in that way, um, but in, in there are certain circumstances where um, continuing a case benefits the defendant. In this particular case, um, I believe that the prosecutor mentioned no less than four times um, that the reason for the delay was for, for the benefit of, of the defendant. Um, he, the prosecutor stated, we afforded him the opportunity to keep continuing their cases. We allowed him to continue it for over a year while we dealt with the other case. That's on page 13. An act, it's an act of grace that we're affording the defendant to allow his other charges to go through the system. On page 11, he stated, I allow the probation matter to be continued to afford Mr. Jeter an opportunity to have his trial. So they were waiting for, for those underlying charges to be played out, but unfortunately, there was a delay in hearing the, the underlying offense be, because, of, because of a busy calendar. I just don't, help me understand the state's position that, that in this particular case, where the underlying charges were ultimately dismissed, the delay was to the benefit of the defendant here. I, I it would be the state's position that, that they, that it did not benefit the defendant in this particular circumstance, but it's, I think, reasonable to think that the defendant thought, if if I get a not guilty in front of a jury, then the probation matter um, got dismissed. Then then the probation violation would would get dismissed. I think the defendant um, played the hands that he 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 was dealt, and um, unfortunately gambled incorrectly. Um, 
I think in this particular set of circumstances, it did not benefit the defendant. But if we look at state versus SASEC, waiting for the underlying charge to, to, to play out actually ended up benefiting him. He was on probation and then was picked up for, um, I believe, drug offenses, and he was convicted. When, once he was convicted by a jury, he then decided to plead guilty um, to obtaining the status of a habitual felon. And in, in that plea, he was able to make a deal with the state, and the state allowed him to roll the probation violation um, and, and, and allowed it um, to run consecutive. Uh, but, but if we're following your theory that it's a case-by-case -case analysis, then are we really supposed to import a benefit that occurred in a different case to decide that it was good cause in this case? My experience uh, as, an, as an assistant district attorney before I joined the, the Department of Justice, ironically in Buncombe County, um, where this case was heard, is that a lot of defendants prefer to wait. In fact, most of the motions to continue are always from the, from, from the defendant. Um, my, my, my experience um, as a prosecutor, though, however, is uh, that a trial court understanding that it, it's, it's limiting, um, that it's limited to, to revoke probations even if I consented to a motion to continue, the, the Superior Court, I know on, on at the Superior Court judge and at least one memorable occasion told me he was not gonna be continuing the case, call my witness, because all he needed was to be reasonably, reasonably satisfied that, that a new crime was committed. Uh, but in most circumstances, it's the defendant who's, who's, who's requesting a continuance because the case law says that the state doesn't have to wait. All they have to do is, is call a witness and, 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 and present, present evidence um, that reasonably satisfies a judge. Well, well just one more question. Um, if, if we understand the General Assembly's purpose to be that um, if someone reoffends, um, there's a there shouldn't be a delay in revoking their probation, that the whole perp, that, that probation is a grace, um, but if you reoffend, um, you should be, that should be withdrawn and you should serve the time um, that you were originally sentenced to and that should happen, justice should be swift and sure. If that's what is behind having a good cause requirement in the first place, doesn't it completely frustrate the legislature's purpose? Whatever the defendants may want or not want, um, doesn't it, isn't what we are supposed to be following here is the legislature's purpose? And if the legislature's purpose was to um, make sure that pr pro probation is revoked um, in a timely fashion, don't we frustrate that by saying that it's good cause to delay until after charges are resolved? It can it can frustrate um, the the intent of the legislator and you know in all candor the the line of cases um, before us um, also also you know say that the state doesn't have to wait um, it, I think in what the state doesn't have to wait and can just present evidence that would reasonably satisfy a judge um, for for a judge to revoke. So the line of cases and the statute, I think it, it, the intent is, is, is to speed up, um, is to speed up hearings. However, I think in the interest of judicial economy and even for the benefit of defendants, uh, I think what, what the statute allows is some wiggle room. Um, 
But this is a standard of review that we are to employ on determining whether or not good cause existed here? The defendant, the defendant argues that it should be a de novo review. However, it is the state's position that it should be an abuse of discretion um, review, uh, review. Is the abuse of discretion review that the state touts uh, synonymous with your view on behalf of the state that good cause should be determined on a state on a case by case basis? May your honor repeat the question? Yeah, is the state's position that the standard of review for us is abuse of discretion uh, synonymous with your view on behalf of the state that uh, this aspect of good cause should be determined on a case-by-case -case basis? Yes, Your Honor. Um, it, it is well established that where matters are left to the discretion of the trial court, appellate review is limited to a determination of whether there was a clear abuse of discretion. And an abuse of discretion occurs when the court's ruling is manifestly unsupported by the reason, uh, unsupport, unsupported by reason, or so arbitrary that it could not have been the, re the result of a reasoned decision. That would allow the court to review these case-by-case -case analyses. Um, it wouldn't be a de novo review, um, but it would allow the trial court to read the record and see if if the court's ruling was supported by the by the record and supported by by the the court's reason on the record because I mean the, the, the statute does does say that good cause must be explicit and on the record it can't be inferred. Um, so that, so an appellate court would be able to read the record and would be able to to review to see if there was an abuse of discretion if if, if the if the ruling of the court was supported by by good reason. Assuming that you're correct that the standard of review is abuse of discretion how would you juxtapose that against the uh, example that my colleague Justice Irvin raised as for good cause being, for example, uh, that the sky is blue uh, as a reason for good cause? Uh, how would we as a reviewing court determine the difference uh, between something that smacks of arbitrariness such as the sky is blue versus what the record may show in terms of good cause being established? Well, I, I would argue that good cause is, is based on all relevant circumstances and facts. Uh, good cause um, will be governed by the circumstances of each and every case, and what, good, what constitute good cause depends on the circumstance of a particular case. So I know if that's the case, then how do we, you I mean, you said it would be limited to relevant circumstances. What, what's relevant? I mean, how, how do we know? What, I mean, we, we can all agree that, it, that it's Tuesday or the sky is blue uh, isn't relevant. What does it need to be relevant to? It's a difficult question to answer because, again, well, you know, it's, it, that, it would be that, a case-by-case case analysis. That's one of the unfair advantages, I guess, I've got up here, which is <laughs> <laughs> right because it's going to be case-by-case. Case. You know, we're, we're, we're um, for instance, if if we're talking about a non-absconding case, a non-revocable case, 
and we're just talking about extension or modification. But whether I, I think what we've got here, though, is 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 revocation, and so it would be, I think, helpful to focus on what would be relevant to whether good cause exists to permit revocation. I mean, what's relevant to that? In, in this particular case, what, what, was, what was relevant is that the defendant had committed um, a number of new offenses while on but, probation. But that, that goes to the second prong. That goes to the grounds for, you know, is, I mean, that, that would be true in any instance in which someone was charged with uh, uh, assault to have their probation revocation. You've got to have not just either absconding or uh, commission of a new offense, but you've also got to have good cause for going ahead and hearing it after the end of the, end of the, the, the period of probation. I mean, it, we can't be saying that merely committing another offense constitutes good cause, because if we're saying that, then you've read the third prong of subsection F out of the statute, I think. That, that's correct, and that is what the line of cases say. I, I believe Morgan touches on that, State versus Bryant touches on that, that, well, maybe not State versus Bryant because the, the, the second prong read differently, but Morgan, I believe, touches on that. But, but I, mean, I mean, good calls can't be predicated on he committed, he or she committed these subsequent crimes because that goes to a different prong of the statute than good cause, I think. Is that logic wrong? It's not wrong. It's, okay. it's, it's correct. And, and I believe so we got it. So it's got to be something other than the sky's blue or Tuesday. It's correct. got to be something other than revocation is at least legally permissible because additional offenses have been committed. So can you help me any further as to what should a trial court do when faced with an argument that there is or isn't good cause? Well, you know, good good cause can exist um, for for several reasons under under different circumstances. Um, again, good cause um, to extend probation could exist uh, because a probationer could not complete the terms of their probation before expiration, and perhaps the court wants to give that probationer another another opportunity, another shot um, at probation. Because the statute, the entire purpose of probation, um, and, it, and if you read 1343, is to ensure that the defendant uh, will lead a law-abiding life. And perhaps the court wants to give um, a defendant another shot at probation and agrees to extend probation because of, of certain circumstances. Like, again, maybe maybe the defendant fell ill and, and needed a little more time to complete his, his GDE or his anger management classes or pay his, his court costs or supervision fees. Um, good cause could exist um, because the onset of a global pandemic that postponed hearings for weeks, if not months, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of those cases from from 2020 and 2021 um, w go through go through the the court system uh, because they were unable to be heard uh, within within the period of, of probation. Before you conclude, I'm thinking about the converse of the circumstance here. I think you've been asked, and and you said a number of times 
the good cause is determined on a case-by-case basis. Conversely, would it always be good cause to allow probation to be extended beyond its uh, expiration period to allow underlying charged offenses to be resolved prior to probation violation charges being resolved? Not always. Um, a good example of that is if a defendant is charged with violating um, the terms of his probation because he absconded and because he committed a new criminal offense, what the state can do is just dismiss the underlying um, probation violation um, where he committed his, where, where, where the defendant committed a new offense and can just proceed on the absconding. That's one way to revoke a defendant. So it's not always gonna be a, across the bar good cause um, to, um, to allow um, a matter to play out because there's a different avenue for, for revocation. Um, so I think in the, in, the, in the interest of judicial economy, it would make sense for, for the state to just dismiss um, the allegation that the defendant violated in, by, by cr committing a new criminal offense and just proceeding on the absconding. Um, this, this was not a, a remedy available in this particular case, however, because the defendant um, was not alleged with um, with absconding, but no, to answer your question, Your Honor, it's not always gonna be um, a, a reason or, or, or good cause. I would next um, turn this attention's um, court to, uh, this court's attention to um, the Court of Appeals did not ignore SASEC as the defendant argues and correctly ruled that the facts in SASEC were inapplicable in this case. Um, NRA civil penalty stands for the proposition that where a panel of the Court of Appeals has decided the same issue, I'll bet in a, in a different case, a subsequent panel of the same court is bound by that precedent unless it has been overturned by a higher court. As it relates to probation, the two key holdings in SASEC are that the trial court erred when it failed to make the required explicit finding that good cause existed to revoke probation after the probation expired, and second, in the absence of the explicit finding, remand is not appropriate, appropriate where the record does not contain evidence of the finding. Good cause cannot be inferred or presumed. Uh, the Court of Appeals correctly ruled that, that the facts in SASEC did not apply to the facts here because the court made the ex the trial court made the explicit finding that for good cause shown and stated that it was going to revoke probation. So the the lower court's ruling comports with SASEC, uh, but this court is not bound by SASEC. Uh, while the lower court's ruling complies with SASEC, it more importantly complies with this decision in Morgan. Um, Morgan, this court in Morgan perfectly summed up um, the, the issue at bar. Uh, this court in Morgan made it clear that the trial courts make a finding, when, when they make a finding that a probationer violated a condition of their probation, the trial courts are then required to make an additional finding of good cause shown and stated to justify the revocation of probation, even though the defendant's probationary term ha has expired. SASEC attempted to use the same logic this court used when deciding Morgan, the logic being that the additional finding of good cause shown and stated must be explicit and can't be inferred from the record. Um, but SASEC 
cited to Bryant and using the same analysis the Bryant court used when interpreting the old statute, the SESA court ended up conflating two substantively different and distinct findings of fact. The logic in SESIC is sound, but this, the decision is flawed since it conflates two completely different standards of, of findings of fact. And I, I would ask this court to review to review SESIC in, in light of, of the two conflated um, findings of fact. And if the court does not have any more questions, then I would like to conclude and, and respectfully request that this court affirm the lower court's ruling. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. I just want to touch on a couple points. One is um, the state versus SASIC issue. Um, there was uh, unanimity in that Court of Appeals opinion that when a, an appellate court reviews a record to determine if remand is necessary or not, they should look to see whether the state's made reasonable efforts. That appears to have been the opinion of all three judges on that court. There was uh, a concurrence, I believe, by Justice Berger, uh, but he would have remanded the case for further findings. Uh, in my opinion, uh, although that, I think that was labeled a concurrence, it might actually have been a dissent because it had a different mandate they would have issued to the trial court below. The state had an appeal, probably of right in SASIC, and they didn't take it. They also did not seek discretionary review of SASIC. At the time of Mr. Getter's hearing, SASIC was the controlling law in North Carolina. This court in Morgan didn't explain what the, an appellate court or a trial court was supposed to look at when it was going to make a good cause determination. SASIC at least put some color on that good cause finding so that courts here would understand exactly what was um, supposed to be determined. If this court is going to do a, an overrule of SASIC at this point, um, like a collateral overruling of SASIC, it should remand Mr. Geter's case for another hearing. Because at that hearing, all the parties proceeded under the belief that SASIC was the law. And that good cause determination was made under that belief that reasonable efforts was the required standard to review. And if that's not true, then the good cause finding below would be an abuse of discretion because it was made under a false apprehension of the legal standard. So. Um, assuming SASIC was incorrect, we would request Mr. Geter's case be remanded for another hearing on well, the good cause determination. Let me make sure I'm understanding you, Mr. Yoder. You're saying, in effect, that if, we, if the court was to hold that SASIC or SASIC or however you pronounce it, it was incorrect in limiting what the, uh, the trial court can, could consider in a good cause determination, uh, and that it was permissible for the trial court to consider something broader than that, we would then need to remand this case in which the trial court appeared to have felt free to consider something broader than that? I, I actually, Your Honor, I believe that the court had SASIC in front of it and believed that the findings it made were comporting with the SASIC finding, um, and that it believed that the, the state had made the efforts necessary to do that. Uh, that was essentially the good cause finding that was made in this case. Um, and the court cited multiple times SASIC and its belief that the time period, um, the length of time and the cause and, and the reason for the delay were the, 
were the basis of the good cause finding. If the delay and the efforts of the state are irrelevant to a good cause finding, as the state appears to argue, that that's just one of many factors, then Mr. Keeter should be able to argue every other factor. Um, in fact, according to the state, any factor that I can think of or that Mr. Geer can think of, they could go to a, that discretionary decision well, below. I think, we, I think we did agree that it being Tuesday and the sky being blue was irrelevant. Well, I, I think we all can agree that the color of the sky is, is likely irrelevant. But this goes to the core of the problem. The Court of Appeals sees a lot of these cases, and it has to make a record review to determine whether good cause could or could not be found. It has to determine whether it's going to remand that case or if it's going to like vacate that without a remand. That was the issue in SASIC. What's your response to the state's position that we should employ here abuse of discretion review, whereby you in your brief state that it should be de novo review? Well, I think the statute here, it's a very unique phrasing. There is no other statute that requires a good cause to be shown and stated that I could find in North Carolina. And I think that indicates that the General Assembly intended a heightened uh, review of this particular kind of finding. Because unlike many other good cause findings by trial courts, in this one, they actually have to explain what that good cause would constitute. So you think it's an error of law that's been committed here because of the fact that it's tied to a statute in terms of what's happening here and in other probation cases? That's correct. And the second argument was that this court has held that this statute is effectively jurisdictional. Um, and it would be an odd statute that was jurisdictional that also allowed the trial court to decide in its own discretion whether it had jurisdiction or not over a case. Jurisdiction is usually not such a gray area. It usually has more firm, bright line rules. And so it was our argument that because it's jurisdictional, because it's also the interpretation of a statute, um, that de novo review was the proper standard of review in this case. If there are no further questions, uh, we would just ask that this court reverse the Court of Appeals and vacate the uh, judgment underlying this case or remand for an additional hearing. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel for venturing west to a beautiful part of our state. Again, thanks uh, to the folks who are here with us. Mr. Clark. Save the state and this honorable court.